Welcome back to season six of The Deal. Thank you for all your support. Please subscribe and tell some friends if they want to get the best content, the best of the best in the real estate game, the blueprint for success. Today's guest is a living legend, Stephen Shapiro, the co-founder and head of Westside Estates Agency with his partner, Kurt Rappaport, who is, we think, the most successful real estate broker in the history of mankind. He probably is. Uh, Stephen Shapiro's right up there with him. Uh, you can find Stephen at uh, Wea Homes, weahomes.com. That's their boutique brokerage or at Stephen Shapiro Homes on Instagram. You can find it in the show notes. Stephen's got some of the, the best guidance and advice you can hear. He's an expert and a true professional at the ultra, ultra high end. He's dealt with many, many, many billionaires. He's at a level that people uh, are aspiring to be at, but it's great that he breaks it down, kicks knowledge, talks about why he doesn't like big teams and why TV agents aren't relevant to what we do and other interesting topics. Uh, school is in session in a big way. You don't get any more knowledgeable than Stephen Shapiro. Enjoy it. Hey, welcome back to The Deal. Today I have a living legend, an icon in the real estate business, Stephen Shapiro. Welcome. How are you, my friend? Living is the uh, key word there. <laughs> yes. I just had... I just had knee surgery on Friday, so oh no, I made it through. So I'm living. What, did you try to do a reverse dunk and you blew out the ACL? I, you know, right now I'm uh, two sheets of paper above the ground is as far as I can get. My leaping ability is gone. I did dunk in high school. Though. So you don't have the vert. So for those in real estate that are in Los Angeles, they know exactly who you are. For those that may not be in real estate or may not be in Los Angeles, let me just tell you, uh, Stephen Shapiro has been in the game 40 plus years. He's the founder, head of uh, Westside Estates Agency, which is a very unique, super ultra high-end uh, brokerage. His partner and him, Kurt Rappaport, started it uh, around 1999. And we'll get into that, but I just want to under let people know that uh, Stephen's been in the epicenter of high high end real estate at the highest level uh for as for as long as uh as I can remember but let's start with where you're from speaking of basketball didn't you hoop it up with Kobe at Lower Marion back east yeah i grew up in lower marion pennsylvania which is just outside the philadelphia city limits and um at that time lower maybe it still is lower marion was a very prestigious School. It was one of the best public schools in the country, and it was a, a great education. And I played varsity basketball for two years. Um, most of the time, I played in practice, <laughs> not uh, not in games. A few games I played in, and uh, people might know Lower Marion by uh, Kobe Bryant, who went there, and he eclipsed all my scoring records in his first game. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Whatever he scored, it was more than I had in my career. So First quarter of his first game. All right, so you grew up back east. Uh, tell me, what, what did your parents do for a living back east? Uh, my mother was a homemaker for myself and my sister. My father owned uh, two motion picture theaters, and um, that kind of taught me the entrepreneurial spirit. He worked seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, because the theater was open and operating every day. Uh, he never took a vacation until I was old enough to relieve him. And then ultimately, after I left, he uh, he sold the location of his last theater, which then became a McDonald's. There you go. Yeah. Big Mac. So was that your first job working at the theater, the family business? My first, my first job was uh, my father giving me uh, a vending machine in in the theater, and I would buy the candy, fill the vending machine. Uh, at that time, the, the the candy was five cents and I would, you know, do all the, count all the five cents and then I would take it and buy more product. And uh, that was my first job, yeah. That's amazing. All right, so let's talk, we did, uh, you know, high school after high school, did you go to college or did you get right into the working world? And how did you end up in Los Angeles from Philly? I went to Temple University. 
I graduated Temple University. It took me six years. I went, I, I stopped to go to work and went to night school at, at St. Joe's and then went back and graduated from Temple. Uh, originally, I came to Los Angeles um, for a couple of years out of high school. Myself and three friends drove cross country and landed in Santa Monica at the beach and saw girls in bikinis, which then inspired me to have the desire to move to Los Angeles. A little different than winners in Philly? Oh, God. So when I moved to, I went to summer school at UCLA one year. And then the following year, I worked at a car wash, not a car wash, a car rental agency on Sunset Boulevard called Val Car Rent-A-Car, which was owned by one of the airlines. Uh, did that for a summer. And then I graduated and moved out here the following summer, worked for them at the airport location, managing the car wash facility before there was mitigation for sound on the airplanes. It was a terrible, terrible job. And then they offered me to open up two, um, two rental car outlets in the Palm Springs area, but they didn't want to give me any increase in salary and I didn't move out here to go to Palm Springs. So I went to a headhunter and was recruited by Connecticut General Life Insurance on a management training program, uh, which taught me some great lessons for real estate because I had to make a hundred calls a day to them. And I had, you know, very quickly learned, it taught me how to handle rejection because that's of those hundred calls a day, at least 98 were rejection and the other two were putting you off. So I did that uh, for, I don't know, it was so, so long ago and so unmemorable, but maybe a year, maybe two years. I don't know. Yeah. Hardcore sales training. Yeah. I, I, unlike the other uh, agents, I was not on commission. I was on salary. So it was a little more palatable for me because I was getting paid to have the rejection. Okay. All right. Um, so what I'm gathering is, you didn't come out to LA on a private jet or limousine with champagne and uh, weren't a trust fund baby, uh, mm -hmm. hanging out with billionaires your whole life. You came out to LA like a young kid, just not knowing what to do and uh, school of hard knocks. You got some really good sales training and business training, grinding it out. All right, so how did you find your way to real estate from car wash, insurance sales, very, very interesting, which people today don't do. Uh, I built a very strong foundation. I was out looking for a new apartment. And during that period of time, you found them in the LA Times. And the ads for the apartments were all glorious till you got to the actual apartment. And it had nothing to do with the description that you read in the LA Times. So... So a friend of a friend, I, having some background in the motion picture business, I developed a concept where we would take 35 millimeter color slides of the exterior and the interior of the actual units um, and then offer a service to potential renters where they would come into our office and they would give us their specifics. They need two bedrooms. They have a dog. They have a kid, whatever it is. And this is before computers, it was a, a card punch system. We'd punch the parameters into the card punch system. Cards would pop up, indicate what tray uh, the slides were in, and then we would show them the slides. Then if they, if they liked what they saw, we had an introductory piece of paper that introduced them to the manager on the premises, showed them the unit. If they rented a unit, we got 35% of the first month's rent. And it was great. At one, point, at one point, we were handling over um, 200 people a day. Uh, and, and then the, the vacancy factor disappeared and the owners didn't need the service anymore. So I segued into high-end leasing in Beverly Hills. The brokers during that period of time did not want to do leasing. 
So I opened a company called The Moving Experience, which did high-end leasing predominantly to uh, motion picture people and recording artists who were coming to LA for a three-month period or a six-month period buy, but needed a place to live. And these people ultimately turned out to be people that wanted to stay in LA. And that's how uh, I got into the sales market. And doing the leases uh, taught me how to do many transactions instead of just focusing on a $3 million sale and waiting for that to happen or not happen. The leases happened, it created immediate income, but it also introduced me to the business managers for these people that you'd be desperate to work with if they were buying houses. So some of them ultimately became clients. And then in 78, 78 to 80, I segued from the high-end leasing to sales. So the foundation was there from the, from the rental business, which was called Scanapad, to the moving experience, then to sales. Yeah, it's an interesting natural evolution, but it's for some reason you zeroed in on real estate and executed and it progressed. Now, this is 1980. I'm just curious, what were interest rates in 1980? Double digits? Uh, well, at one point I bought a house where the interest rates were 18%. But you couldn't, you couldn't, um, you couldn't make a traditional sale then. All the sales were done with um, uh, seller financing. Owner financing, yeah, okay. So that was the only so way. Would, it, it was called uh, an all-inclusive uh, deed of trust. So the, the seller would keep his low interest loan in place, loan you around that, and you made one payment to the seller who then paid the first trustee. And that's how you had to do business in those days. All right. So now here you are starting in the sales business in L.A., 1980. Uh, that's also interesting because L.A. is probably really starting to boom in the 70s and 80s and growing on every way. So tell me about you know some of the challenges of growing your business then and you know how you went from starting 1980-ish to you know, 20 years later or so, starting the high-end brokerage boutique? As, as I think it was really 78. And I think what happened in 78 is I went into business with Jack Douglas and became his leasing arm when he had only a couple of offices. And I, I loved Jack. He was a great guy. But he would come to me and say, look, we're opening an office in the Palisades. I have to exclude you from the leasing there. I have to do this. I have to do that. And he had wanted to invest and buy properties that I came to him with. And I, I came to him with an incredible deal. It was a friend of mine who uh, was one of my first leasing clients that owned um a great property in Brentwood, 25 Oakmont, which is the old Martin Cadillac property. It was a, a, a Paul Williams house on two and a half acres. It was great. And he was getting a divorce. And he called me and he said, I need you to sell this in one week before I file for the divorce. So I no longer own the house. And I don't care I don't need any money down. I just need the title transferred and they can pay me in a year. So I go to Jack and um, and I give him this unbelievable deal. And, you know, he couldn't make the decision. <laughs> so I wound up selling it to a client friend. And it was obviously, if anybody knows 25 Oakmont, it was a major mistake. It was $3 million then, which was, the highest price paid west of the 405. Uh, but today it's worth, you know, many, many, many multiples of that. And it was in a year or two worth much more than the 3 million. So as I saw him uh, kind of back off on the concept of me bringing him deals, I had met Stan Herman because a lot of our clients were the same clients. I was dealing with 
Freddie Fields, who won the Lisa's house, Stan was dealing with Freddie Fields that wanted to uh, sell a house. And uh, he introduced me to Freddie once at a screening of one of Freddie's movies. We became close friends, wound up selling Freddie, I don't know, six, seven, eight houses over the years. Uh, and it was just, you know, Stan, Stan was a very aggressive real estate broker who owned a lot of properties himself. And I learned a lot very quickly and, you know, learned a lot about the clientele and what the needs were and stuff and, and, you know, became his top person, even though he had the old school Thelma Orloff and Shirley Wells and, and this one and that one that were living legends. It was, it was Stan Herman, Mike Silverman in those days. Those were the two the two high-end guys. Uh, so I did that for quite a while, uh, became half owner of the business. It became Stan Herman, Stephen Shapiro and Associates. Uh, he ultimately pretty much stopped working and just played backgammon in his office every day. Uh, and, and real estate started changing in the, in the late 90s to a computer business. You know, we used to have a book with the three hole punch listing sheet. And that's how you, you, you had folders that said Beverly Hills, Bel Air, and you would flip through it to see what houses were available. Uh, so as it became more computer oriented, he did not want to um, invest in the business because I wanted you know, I said, we need a computer on everybody's desk and we need to do this and we need to do that. And he didn't want to do it. And we started, well, let's see, we're going to segue into something else. At the time, commission breaks, commission splits were 50-50. Right. Very different than today. Commission splits were 50-50. And Joyce Ray was working for Jack Hupp. Uh, and... Uh, Harley Sandler was starting uh, his brokerage and he wanted to start Rodeo Realty, different than the Rodeo Realty that's next door here. And he offered Joyce 60 instead of 50. So she, so she left Jack up for uh, Harley Sandler. And, um, you know, that started, that was the first of the commission wars. Harley Sanders started, we're going to talk to Doug about that. He started the commission splits. <laughs> uh, so so that's, that started the whole, uh, uh, you know, recruitment of high-end brokers. Yeah, the recruitment and, war and the splits now that are in the And 80s, we, started, we started losing brokers and Stan didn't want, again, didn't want to, get into the business that was that was happening. So I had suggested that he take half of his half of the business and we start to give equity to um, the agents so that they wouldn't leave. But he wasn't willing to do that. So, you know, our, our top salesperson at that time was Kurt Rappaport, who's now my, my fantastic partner. And um, I said to Kurt, we want to go and start our own business. And he didn't hesitate. He said, yes. So I think we each put up $100,000 and we opened West Side Estate Agency. So this is late 90s. This is 90. We opened in 99. So probably six months before that. And, and I actually had another concept that would have ruled the world even today. I, I put together a group of the top brokers in town and um, had a dinner at Morton's and there were 12 of us. And I said, we control this business. Here's what we need to do. We need to do this like a law firm. We'll, all, we'll have senior partners, we'll have junior partners, we'll have associates, and we'll open a business and we will own the business, period. And it was a, it was a great concept. It probably still is a great concept. But they were so reluctant to be business owners. They didn't understand entrepreneurship. They didn't understand the, the concept of it. So then uh, Kurt and I went out on our own from there. 
Yeah. So now Kurt had to be a young guy in 1999. Yeah. It, but he was already a top producer. He yeah. was already hit. So, so for those of you, I mean, I think everyone knows Kurt he could be the most successful uh, broker in the history of mankind. I mean, probably well, not could not could be. He is yeah. right. He is the most successful <laughs> broker and by by a long shot. Uh, yeah. So he started hitting it young. You were yes. running the business at with Stan Herman. You guys connect. And was the concept, were you guys already both dealing with high end at that point? We were both dealing with high end. And the concept of, of the business is that we can't help everybody. So let's just help the higher end. Uh, so we weren't interested in representing condos for 250000 So I, I think we, I think, and this is just, you know, going back in time, I think we didn't want to deal with anything under a million or two million at the time. So that was uh, that was our game plan. So you opened your doors and did you bring agents with you or was it just? We brought, there were, there were a few that came with us. I think we had, we had Lauren Judd, we had Richard Ehrlich. Um, uh, we had, a, we had a, a, a couple of people, Stan Richmond started uh, with us. He, I had hired him at Stan Herman, Stephen Shapiro Associates, brought him along with us. So, you know, we had a few people. We probably had six or seven. Yeah, all smart, great agents and now all top, top dogs. All right. So talk to me about the progression of the business. Now, Westside Estates Agency is so unique. It is authentically a high-end brokerage, some of the highest sales, the most sales in the high-end, but very small in terms of the amount of agents. You guys have never looked to franchise or expand, or it's always been a tight, lean machine. I don't know if there, how many brokers are there, but I know about a dozen of them that are you know, all crushing it at a high level. Talk to me about what it, lo what it looks like now. Well, we have we we expanded about twelve years ago to an office in Malibu because Kurt, Kurt and I were doing so much business in Malibu. All of our clients in town wanted houses in Malibu, so uh, we we did that. And Kurt and I were basically selling beachfront property, and we hired some other agents that were covering the other areas of Malibu. I mean, literally. If I didn't sell 80% of the houses on Carbon Beach, I didn't sell any of them. It just, I could go through a, a list. Once when I was soliciting a listing with Mark Gruskin, I took the seller of the house and we walked down the beach and I said, sold that one, sold that one, sold that one, sold that one, sold that one. Uh, it was pretty incredible, the amount of property. Uh, and then Kurt had Ellison as a client and sold like 11 houses on Carbon. Right. I mean, talk to me a little bit about that, because that's one of the great stories in the business with Kurt and Larry Ellison going around, knocking on doors and buying one house at the next. Give For those who may not know, give us a quick story of, you know, what Kurt and Larry Ellison I, I think what happened was um, somebody called Kurt and said, I've got a client I want to refer to you for a referral fee. And the client happened to be Larry Ellison. And then after he bought the first house, he had decided he wanted to acquire more houses. So I hit my clientele and, you know, we did a lot of, you know, I sold him one that was owned by a guy that we called the Tomato King. He was growing all the tomatoes in Mexico. And then uh, 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 Judy Israel had a double lot. And, we were putting together these parcels that Ellison was buying. And, and it, well, no, there were gaps, but there were a lot that were together and he's a patient man. So where there were gaps, he was hoping to fill the gaps. Um, and it, it just changed the pricing in Malibu to where it is this day. It just, it, this was in the mid 2000s. This was in the mid 2000s. So it, you know, where where people thought he overpaid by paying 10 million, uh, 10 million became a bargain. He he set the market that everybody else would have to pay. So it was fun. So back back to your question. I think between the two offices, we probably have 
60, 65 agents of which, you know, 10, 12 do business and others were trying to break and, you know, they're taking our lower end properties and, you know, the higher end brokers are referring to the, to the newer brokers to do the servicing for the um, properties that they don't want to handle themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So as a business owner, brokerage owner, and an agent, talk to me about some of the challenges you, uh, you or you and Kurt have balancing that out, managing your own business versus managing the brokerage business. Well, I pretty much manage the day-to-day -day operations of the business. We have Colin Keenan now, who's our uh, general manager, who's, who's fantastic. So he takes a lot of the interaction with the agent deals off of my plate. But what was always our biggest challenge was uh, recruiting other super high-end agents because they were competing with us. So, you know, they're competing for the same listings, which isn't always palatable when you're in the same company. And, and we treat ourselves uh, to this day as a, as a small family. So we didn't want, you know, we didn't, we, we weren't interested in having cutthroat competition within the office between agent and agent. So we, we have been successful in taking mid-range mid people and moving them from 5 million to 10 million or 10 million to 15 million, as opposed to taking agents that are already selling 15, 20, 25 and bringing them over. Plus, with Compass, uh, uh, you know, screwing up the entire business by just acquiring agents by overpaying them, um, nothing personal. Uh, you know, those high-end agents were induced to stay at their companies and be loss leaders for other agents. So it didn't behoove us to hire those people and give them you know, enormous commission splits and marketing budgets and assistance and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, here we are, 2022 in uh, September. Clearly, things are normalizing in the markets, transitioning in the markets. Uh, you are specifically focused on a very small market of high end, but talk to me about the high end market uh, in September of 2022 and how the transition and normalization has impacted uh, the markets you're in. Surprisingly, to me, the very high-end market has remained strong. We're still seeing people spending 20, 30, $40 million. I, I, I am quite honestly a bit surprised. You know, I've, I've felt that with the decline in the stock market, that maybe people wouldn't want to cash out their equities at uh, a lower price than it was six months ago. And um, I also felt that from an optic point of view, maybe people that are running companies uh, didn't want to see their employees, see them buy a $50 million house, but it, it, has continued. I mean, it, it, it has remained very, very strong in the high end. I think in the mid price range, we'll call that five to, to 10 to 15, the people have more time to look at houses. They're not selling as quickly. Uh, in the lower end, in the two to five, we're still seeing uh, a lot of activity, especially in the in the closer to two, uh, we're seeing a lot of generational buying where uh, wealthy people are buying those lower priced properties for their children. Because we're somebody buying a $2 million house getting $2 million in cash to buy a house. Um, you know, that's, that's not the typical way you buy a $2 million house. So we're still seeing strength in that. Um, you know, when the pandemic started, I thought the business was over. I mean, literally, I thought it was over uh, until it normalized. But we figured out new ways to sell real estate. 
you know, we were selling it without open houses, with limiting two people per showing, uh, masks and gloves, and some places even made us wear booties and wiping everything down, and sellers being paranoid that somebody's coming in their house and they're going to die. Uh, so it it was um, it was a strange moment in time. It was a strange, strange moment in time. But we got through it. And, uh, um, you know, like you said in the beginning, we're normalizing. This is, you know, people are all upset with 6% interest rates. 6% was always considered reasonable to low, but people got spoiled at 3%. But, but the reality, the, re the reality is that if you were getting a 3%, I'll give you an example. I'm, I sold a, a place that I owned in Nashville, and my interest rate was 2.5%. Now, I'm trying to do a 1031. So I have to equate my, my mortgage on whatever I identify at the same level as what I had there. And that same 2.5% that was costing me $1,500 a month is now going to cost me $3,000 a month. So it becomes very difficult to identify something that can throw off the same amount of positive cash flow. But you're looking, you know, you have to tell your clients and you have to understand that you're not looking to buy a property and sell it in six months or a year. You have to say, where is it going to be in five years or 10 years? You have to look for the appreciation in equity more than you're looking at the cash flow uh, that's being thrown off. Sure, and the lifestyle and memories, and it's not just uh... you have. And you have to you have to look to to um, be a more aggressive buyer. You know, you have to aggressive meeting price wise. You have to. You have to be able to say, this is all it's worth to me, no more. It can't be just pay any price like it was right. before. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the biggest change. It's not just pay any price. And for average properties, I'm seeing you can't just name any price because no one's paying. No, aspirational, aspirational prices are done. Right, but with blue chip locations and blue chip properties, which are still so few and far between, I'm still seeing astonishing high prices and no give, but it's the average and below average that I'm seeing sit in price reductions. And well, when you, when, you, when, when you look at things selling and you go back and you look at history, they're not selling for what they were asking. Usually, yeah. Yeah. That's a new phenomenon. Yeah. There's, there's Let's switch gears and pivot here before, I know you don't have a ton of time left, but I would love to hear your guidance, advice, and how to how to deal with ultra high net worth clients and the teams of business managers and lawyers and friends and entourage. You know, this is sort of a loaded question and it's a lot to unpack, but I would love to kind of get your take since that's been your expertise, your whole career, and you've seen it all. I'm sure there's some awful stories and some good ones too, but. Well, my, my thing, and I think our company's thing is um, to be an individual as opposed to a team of, you know, 50 people or 100 people where, you know, the team leader is going out and, and going on a listing appointment and the seller never sees that person again. So I had, I had uh, when I was still at uh, Stan Herman, Stephen Shapiro Associates, uh, I was a, a star and there were articles and I was on the Today Show and I was on CNN and, you know, my head was a bit swelled. And in those days, you didn't have direct dial phone numbers. So I had a secretary who would field the calls and she would say, Stephen, Danny Brown's on the line. And I would say, well, I can't talk to him right now. Who's Danny Brown? I'm talking to Magic Johnson. I tell Danny. So <laughs> I, I she picks up the phone. She calls me. She says, Kirk Kikorian is on the line. Ah. And I pick up the phone and it's not Kirk Kikorian's secretary. It's Kirk Kikorian. And, um, 
you know, I don't know, I forget how he heard of me, but he did. And, uh, you know, he said, I think it was over Memorial Day or Labor Day or Fourth of July. He said, I want to rent a house on the beach for four days. And I'm going, well, that is a tough task. And he says, well, I know you can do it. So I start calling people I know that own these houses. And I say, you want to take a great four-day vacation? Uh, so Kirk says, let me pick you up. He's driving his own car. He has no security entourage. And, you know, we get to talking about business during this period of time. And he said, um, you know, you need to return every call within an hour. And if you can't return it within an hour, have your assistant call and say, can Stephen call you at three o'clock this afternoon? So they know that you've dealt with their call as opposed to just waiting to return the call at three o'clock. He said something very simple, but you know, has molded my real estate career. And it was, you have to make your client feel like they're your only client. Uh, and I have done that and it becomes easier to do that with email and text messages. And, it, it, you know, I've had so many people over the years say, you get back to me so quickly. It's amazing how responsive you are. Uh, so I learned to do that much to the dismay of my wife, because I'm always on my iPhone. Uh, but those were two really important lessons from at the time, one of the wealthiest, most important men in the world and a genuine, amazing human being. So, so I, found, I found a house for him and uh, rented it for the four days. And the second day he calls and says, the housekeeper is here, how much should I pay her? And I said, I don't know, Kirk, give her $100. So he said, so if I give her 250, it's okay? I said, you give her 250, she's gonna be in another world. Then he calls me after the four days are up and he says, uh, you know, I'd like to rent that house for long-term. So I, I call the, the guy that's in there and he says, well, if he'll give me 25,000 a month, he can have it for two years. And Kirk says, Great, but I want the ability to remodel the, the master bathroom and put in a new kitchen. And this is this is this is Kirk's deal. He would he would buy something, sell it, rent it back from the person he sold it to, then buy it back, remodel it. It was it was a trip. He he was amazing. It was it was a great learning experience. And at the time in town. He lived on West Wanda. In, he lived on West Wanda in like a, a little thousand square foot place above the garage. He was so real and basic and not spoiled. He he knew I knew Linda Evans because Linda was married to Stan Herman. And at one point he asks me to um uh at one point he asks me to uh, maybe he wants to be fixed up with her. <laughs> Fix me up with Wonder Woman. Linda Evans is Wonder Woman. No, not Wonder Woman. Uh, Dynasty. 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 Uh, Linda Carter was Wonder Woman. Uh, so then he calls. He says, better yet, don't, because I don't like publicity and everybody's taking her picture. So if we go out to eat, there's going to be paparazzi taking pictures. So call it off. Okay. Um, you know, those are the those are the Kirk stories. So I did a lot of business with him over the years. Incredible lessons. Call people yeah. back within an hour or have someone in your office let them know when to call you back and treat each client like they're your only clients. If we all did that, our business would be much better. Uh, I love it. Any other words of wisdom for agents that are trying to break in or grow their business or yeah i mean the the main thing is to build a foundation don't get your license and expect to sell a five million dollar house sell a million dollar house 
So the, the most important lesson that I learned when I started doing the leases was to be comfortable doing the transactions, to be comfortable dealing with the people on the buyer's end or the seller's end that were managing the transactions. You have to know what you're doing. And you don't necessarily know, well, not you don't know the day you're getting in the business. It takes a long time to know uh, the answers to all the questions and objections that are gonna come up. And, and it, it's, it's still like, I, I just don't like the, the massive team approach. If somebody's got two or three people that they are trusted on their team, great. But when you have, I'm not going to mention names, but when you have people that have 100 people or 80 people, it's lost. You're losing the personal nature of the business. And at the end of the day, it's a personal business. Yes. Very good point. I, uh, yeah. I, I would agree. 100% agree. What does your crystal ball tell you uh, moving forward in the real estate world? Uh, how are things looking in the next 12, 24 months, 36 months? First thing that tells me there's going to be a lot of people out of the business. You know, a lot of people come into the business after watching the reality shows where it makes making money look very, very easy. There are no inspections. There is no loans. There's, you know, it's, you show the house and it's sold and here's the key. I'm still waiting for that. It's been 20 plus yeah. years. They get into the business without a real understanding of what the business is. And it's and it's a shame. Uh, so, you know, that will weed out people that aren't going to do business, uh, which I think I, I think there are too many people chasing too few properties. So I think that's good. Uh, the other thing that I don't like, which is a, a pet peeve of mine, is Okay, a pet peeve of mine is how these, again, I'm going to call them TV brokers, decided to break everything down to price per square foot, which is great if you're in a vertical market. If you're in a horizontal market, if there's no house on it, the land is worth a lot of money. So you can't say it's selling for $2,000 a square foot when the land under it is worth X millions of dollars with nothing on it. But it was the, it was the easy way out. And unfortunately, it, appear, it appears that it has been adopted. So I have to spend a lot of time saying, don't give me price per square foot unless you're talking about a condominium. Yeah, it's irrelevant otherwise. And even in the condo, where does the view face? What's the well, floor plan? Yeah, exactly. But at least there's reference. I mean, it's ridiculous because it's like you could be facing a wall with no view. You could be facing the ocean in the city. I had a listing for $32.5 million on two and a half acres. And there was only thing on it was a 1,200 foot um, uh, pool house. So what's that price per square foot? <laughs> $25 million, $35 million for foot? It's ridiculous, right? So the value was the land, not the, not the structure that was on the land. We have to pull back. It's, it's very simple in, in the flats of Beverly Hills to determine what the price per square foot of land is. So you know that if you're on a 15,000 foot lot, it's worth X. And then you have a 5,000 foot house on top of it. Is it a new house? Is it an old house? What's the cost to rebuild that house? Is it $500 a foot? So you take $500 a foot times 5,000 feet, that's two and a half million. You put it on top of the land value and that's the value of your property, not price per square foot. Pisses me off. You're getting me upset now. I'm firing you up. I love it. What other pet peeves do we got? Let's keep going. TV uh -huh. brokers, price per square foot. You're hitting all my favorite topics. So, you know, and, and the other thing that pisses me off, because as brokers, you have only one thing to do, and that's to sell a house. And when I, when I show a listing, I'm there half hour, 20 minutes before the appointment. What if the people show up early? I want to be ready. I want the house prepared. So it really pisses me off when I show up with a client and the broker shows up after my client and I show up. Okay. So 
that upsets me no end. Brokers. I've been be guilty of that at times. I gotta admit, I, I well, don't it's do terrible. Anything. It's terrible. I hate it too. It's annoying. And, and back to the assistant thing. I had I was I was showing a house in the flats of Beverly Hills, 700 block. It was a 17 and a half million dollar house. And my client, my buyer, was the chairman of the board of the largest um, legal firm in the world. Heavy duty guy. And the broker sends an assistant at the first showing. And my guy, who's a smart, calculating guy, how many zones of air conditioning? Oh, I don't know. Uh, is there a central music system? Uh, I don't know. How many square feet in the guest house? I don't. He looked at him and said, why are you here? Well, you know, what, what is your point? To unlock the door? We don't need you to unlock the door. We need you to answer questions. And that is another problem with the assistant issue. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, you see more concentrated on teams and big teams. But yes, the assistant shows up with no information. It doesn't yeah. help. <laughs> doesn't help unless you're opening doors. If, if I'm if I'm putting something somebody else on a listing, they're coming with me on the listing appointment. They're learning about the house as I'm learning about the house, so that they have a, a, a broker's awareness of what question a buyer might ask or what details you representing the seller might want to share with the buyer without the buyer asking. Uh, you know, a monkey can unlock a door if you train them. And that's what's happening a lot of times. I agree. I don't like that either. You need to have a basic competence level of understanding. And uh, yeah, if something's complicated or it's uh, you know, curveball question, sure, we'll get back to you. But you got to know the basics, the fundamentals. Yeah. I think that's one of the big, uh, the big issues. And you, this, your examples are are hitting on. But the fundamentals. So many brokers don't have the fundamentals. They jumped in, they sold a big house, they made a big commission, and they never learned the fundamentals. And well, when when I go, when I try to secure a listing. And uh, fortunately, I'm at the point in my career where I only want to work with people that I like or houses that I like. So, but but the 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 accumulators of listings are they're going to face conflicts. You know, here's your five million dollar house you have a listing on, and somebody wants to see it at eleven o'clock, and somebody else calls and wants to see the twenty million dollar house at eleven o'clock. Guess what's happening? The $20 million house is being shown, not the $5 million house. So the accumulators are getting three new listings, expiring two, selling one, uh, you know, losing another. So they're they're not in the business of concentrating on your house. They're concentrating on their business as opposed to your business. So there is an opportunity for agents who want to be the hands-on uh, uh, professional um, representing a seller as opposed to, so if you're, what I like to do when I go on a listing, I don't always get the answer, but my question is, who else are you talking to? So if they tell me they're talking to Again, I'm not going to mention any names, but you can interpolate the names that I'm thinking of. I'm saying, well, you know, they sell a lot of houses, but they also don't sell a lot of houses, and they definitely have a lot of conflicts. So if somebody wants to see your house at the same time, a more expensive house is being shown, you're getting a less experienced person in to show your house, if at all. So I, I think it's important. you. you if you represent five properties and they're good properties and you can get them priced right and you have a relationship with the seller, you can make a lot of money. You know, you don't need to, to, to have 30 to accomplish the same thing you can accomplish with five. So be a specialist as opposed to uh, a generalist. Yeah, I love that because that's been my business model. I've never liked the team approach, but it's been this trendy thing and it's an ego thing and it's smoke and mirrors. But the opportunity yeah. is for sharp knowledge brokers who can give white glove service attention 
incompetence, you could really flourish and be very profitable because I've had these discussions with people about teams and there's teams losing their ass right now because they have 30, 40 brokers and marketing expenses yeah. for 50 listings. Uh, they're not necessarily prof you know, very profitable. Some are, of course, and they'll make some big sales. But bottom line is there is an opportunity and doing it with customer service and attention, <laughs> like you're saying, and being knowledgeable, you know, that that's a good way to make a lot of money in this business. I love that. I love that approach. Well, look, I I got to get the caravan. So do you. Anything else yeah, you want to? Anything you want to close with? We can have a uh, we can have a uh, venting session, part two. Yeah, I, I think you you know I think the you have to be realistic. You have to know your business. You have to be smarter than the person you're up against. You have to um, uh, understand that sales are overcoming objections, and if you're not able to overcome the objections, you're not going to sell anything. And people will disappear from the business that aren't professionals. So it's it's better to uh, take your time and develop a foundation. And I still think that maybe leasing is a way to get into the business. You know, you get paid right away. You can do three, four, five leases a month and generate significant income and then you know, service those people as if they're buyers. And one day they will turn into buyers. And You've got them locked in. I think that's great advice. Foundation, foundation. Well, I'm glad uh, we've had some time. You're still living and still a legend. Thank you for sharing. Uh, sorry about the technical difficulty, but anytime, open door for you to come back. It's so fun hearing you uh, talk reality. And what did you think? What did you think of the uh, of the Inman luxury thing? Look, I don't get much out of. I enjoyed your talk. I enjoyed Gary Gold's talk. Uh, a few others, but to me, it seems like it's really a fluff festival for TV agents to get more PR, and it's not. Right. Uh, so, guys like you and I who have knowledge, like what, what the heck are we it's doing? Exactly here? what it turned into. It turned into the agents that I'm talking about, the TV agents, or the or the teams, or the giant teams. It, it, I mean, I'm listening to, I forget which one talking about how they take everybody to Paris and they take this and they do that. Well, what about your clients that are still in Los Angeles trying to buy and sell houses? Your 50 listings. <laughs> oh, you know, it just, it, it made, I had to leave. It all, you know, every I left at lunch. I left at lunch. I couldn't, it, it just became all the same. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed hearing you talk, and uh, Gary Gold is always, uh, you know, stand-up comedy and fun and interesting, and a couple others. But yeah, for the most part, I, come on, I don't need to sit here and listen to a TV agent tell me how to yeah. how to build a business. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. All right, I got to get to work. You're awesome. Great to see you. Thanks, Danny. We'll see you soon.